Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Talking about Instagram and Facebook and all that, I don't know if you was given a, uh, if you were just saying final as in final leading up to the finality of me being finished with this series, or if you was being prophetic, uh, or if you was being persuasive. But uh, yeah, it's kind of like in the last leg of the journey. I still probably got two more in me beyond tonight because we've not even got to chapter five yet. I haven't got to chapter 5 yet. I just took it as final as meaning, you know, it's like it's coming to an end. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul saying, finally, brethren, then he spoke for 29 more verses. Verse number 12, those starting night, reading verses 12 through 16 here this evening. Peter addressing those he wrote said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let, none of your, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Amen. I'm going to try to finish out chapter 4 tonight. I want to talk to you tonight on this topic. The trial proves you. The trial proves you. He said in that first verse there of our scripture said tonight that the fiery trial which is to try you. The, the trial proves or the trial tries you. Amen. I want to go to the Lord in prayer that he would help us. Amen. Here on part 10 tonight. Lord Jesus, I come to you this evening. Pray, oh God, that you have an anointing us, Lord, in this place. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, I give you, Lord, the efforts, God, Lord, of a man, but I'm asking God for the empowerment of the Spirit. God, in this place, Lord, tonight, God, through your word, you're able to help aid us, Lord Jesus. God, our understanding, God, and our Lord relaying as well here tonight. God, that we can walk away with something, Lord God, for our souls. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Everybody say amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight. I'm going to warn everybody ahead of time that it is spring. And I've been on sneezing crazes for the past few days. So if one hits me, just count them. Just count them. All right. <clears throat> Here is something concerning this section of passage tonight that I want us to consider or put in our mind. And that is, and this is something we have seen. It's been developed throughout this book of 1 Peter. That though the world may think you are strange, and though you may feel strange in this world at times, there is no reason to think that what's happening to you, the suffering that you go through, is strange. Because suffering is not, according to Peter, it's not strange. He said in different places that suffering is what we've been called to, for one. And so it should not be something strange. Suffering is the trial that tries you or the trial that proves you. And that is suffering's purpose. That's its purpose on purpose, to try and to prove us. As commonly then in the day which Peter wrote, and probably I guess as it is now, I guess people believe that suffering should have been foreign to them Alien, if you will, to someone that's, you know, blood-bought, hallelujah, filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, they shouldn't have to go through any suffering. 
Uh, that is the concept of Peter's day, and I believe many times that's something that we assume for ourselves, that being filled with the Holy Ghost and being a child of God should mean that we would be exempt from suffering, but that is not the case. At times, we assume the attitude that certain things shouldn't happen to a quote-unquote Christian. just shouldn't happen to him. A Christian shouldn't, a Christian shouldn't you know, lose uh, a loved one. A Christian should not, you know, we think sometimes maybe a Christian shouldn't lose a loved one or that they shouldn't go through things that, that, that tries their, their lives or tries, you know, their personality. Shouldn't happen to them, shouldn't come upon them because they're a Christian. Newsflash, we are greatly mistaken if we have that type of opinion. And there's some people in here probably say that louder than others. Boy, you just don't even know what you can go through and still be a Christian. But we don't need to. Here's something that happens when suffering comes. And you may agree or disagree with this. It's according to where you are if you walk with the Lord. Uh, sometimes whenever suffering comes into our life, at whatever degree it may be, sometimes that causes us as Christians then to start to second guess the existence sometimes of God. Because if God was real, God was in control of all things, then he could snap his fingers and eliminate all this that's happening right now in my life. At times, it even make you second-guess the reasoning of God. What is he even up to? Huh? What are you doing? Don't you see all of this mess? And don't you see how long this has all been going on? And so we have all these things. We have these tendencies sometimes to doubt God due to suffering, even wonder at times. People, I've heard them say, does God really even love me? I mean, would he treat somebody like this that he loves, you know, type of thing? Would God even really love me? We've got to understand some of the suffering that God has that comes in our life, it's something that he allows. It's not necessarily something he's doing to us, but something he's allowing to come into our lives. Amen? And so here is Peter. He understands the mentality of people whenever they're going through suffering. And so he starts right off in verse number 12, and he says, Beloved, and that's an awesome thing, really, because... In moments of suffering when you don't feel like you're loved, when you don't feel like God cares, when you feel like he's wrote you off and set you on the backside of the burner, so to speak, Peter is addressing them as the beloved. Amen. And that word is used mostly as a parent would view their child. More importantly, as a parent would view their only child, as if they only had one child. Uh, so, you know, whenever you have several children, you need to kind of disperse that about. But when you have one kid, it's all focused just on that kid. That kid and that kid alone gets all of the love of his parent. And so whenever Peter addresses these that are in times of suffering, he calls them the beloved. In other words, you're getting all the love. Well, it don't, you, can you love me differently? You know, uh, all this suffering is coming upon me. As a matter of fact, this beloved or this love that Peter is speaking to them about and he is calling them, it's the love that seeks the ultimate spiritual welfare of the one who is loved. Mm. So he's seeking the ultimate spiritual welfare of these people. And so if that's the case, then this quote-unquote suffering must be a part of that welfare, their spiritual welfare that they must be going through in their life. How in the world? Well, it tries us. It proves us. So whenever our trials come, when our tribulations come, when our suffering come, we got to realize that God would not allow it if it wasn't going to contribute in some way to our overall spiritual welfare of life. It's not always easily discernible. It's not always easily seen going into it or in the middle of it. Sometimes it's hindsight that shines the best light on what its purpose was in our life. But in spite of all that, Peter wanted them to know leading into this that in spite of how you may feel right now with what's going on in your life due to suffering, you are really loved. And so then the tipping point for us, the tipping point for us as Christians, as people is this, is thinking that no one else how many times you ever went through suffering and you thought, no one else has faced what I'm facing? Sincerely. No one else is facing what I am facing. And as a result of that, you feel isolation because you feel like you are the only one. It's kind of like the Elijah that goes to the cave and hides him in there and says, Lord, I'm the only one, you know. 
I'm the only one that's, you know, standing for your name. And then he finds out there's 7,000 more over in a cave somewhere. But if we don't watch it, when we think that we're the only one going through what we're going through, we have that sense of isolation that we're under a burden or we're under something right now that we're going through that no other, no other person has ever had to carry in their life. And so with that, when we feel like we're the only ones, comes what? The feeling of unfairness. Why am I the only one? Why am I the only one that has ever went through this? You know, God, you could have shared this with somebody. So it's just the way that you feel that you're the only one. But when you feel like that, then you feel like it's unfair that I'm the one that out of everybody has to be the one going through what I'm going through because I'm the only one that's ever went through it like this, right? And so many times we believe then that no one, no one has experienced what we experience, and that might be true in your immediate context, maybe within your church, maybe nobody else has went through what you went through. Maybe in your community, your city, maybe there is nobody else that has went through what you went through. But in reality, if we think about even the world of almost 8 billion people, and then take those that have lived upon this life there backwards, there's probably a good chance somebody can identify with what you're going through. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 13, it says it like this. Whenever we have that, that mindset, it says there hath no temptation, which the word temptation there means trial. It means test. There have no temptation taking you. Everybody say me. But such as is common, common to man, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted or tested and tried above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. So there is no test or trial that's come upon us that isn't common to man, maybe not in your immediate environment, but in the environment of humanity somewhere, somehow, uh, there is a, a case. Uh, I know we see sometimes, it's like, well, there's, this only happens to 3% of people. Well, 3% of even 8 billion is a good segment of people. You understand what I'm saying? They might not live in your state. They might not live next door to you, but there is someone. And so when we understand these type of things, remember last week, I think it was last week, we was talking about, you know, you live your life in such a way that you want to surprise, or two weeks ago, you want to surprise those that knew you back in the day and so you live your life and they're surprised that now you're not going here you're not going there you're not doing this you're not doing that so that we're the gentiles or the unbelievers that were surprised because of the behavior well peter kind of does a switch in this chapter so we surprise the unbelievers because of our behavior but the suffering that comes upon us he's telling us we should not be surprised or we should not be shocked by the suffering that comes uh, the old, old preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, used to say like this. He said, God had one son without sin. He's talking about Jesus Christ. But he never had a son without trial. He's talking about us all, including Christ. Only one without sin, but never had one that was without trial. If you look in the book of beginnings, in the book of Genesis, and again, purpose for the suffering, or reasons why we suffer, Cain, right, he took the life of his brother Abel. This is important. Cain did not take Abel's life because Abel was religious. Walk with me here for a moment. Because Cain, the Bible says, in due season brought a sacrifice. Abel had brought a sacrifice, but in due season Cain brought a sacrifice and gave it to God as well. Cain is not killing Abel because he's religious. Cain killed Abel because his own works, the Bible says, were evil, but Abel's works were, look at it now, were righteous. Because there's a difference in between being religious and being righteous. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Why did he slew him is basically the question. Why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. John, here in 1 John, he's writing. He's, 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 he's telling us a little bit of, of some principles and story here. And this is important. Uh, everything I say is important. It's the word of God. I just say that just for whatever reason. But, you know, uh, <coughs> amen. And that's not a spirit of arrogance. I'm saying the word, okay? John was saying 
that a child, this is leading up to this verse, that a child of the devil is known from a child of God by whoever did or did not do righteousness. So you could know a child of God because they do righteousness. You know it's a child of the devil if they do unrighteousness. He says, so whoever doesn't do righteousness, and he put in there, and doesn't love his brother, is a child of the devil. Well, let me tell you something. So that's, that's what classifies a child of God or someone that is righteous. Religion does not make you a child of God. Religion does not make you a child of God. Righteousness makes you a child of God. And it is righteousness that spawns many of a Christian's reproach that comes upon them and suffering that comes upon them. You don't just suffer, listen, you don't just suffer because you're religious according to the word. You suffer because you are righteous. And whenever the end of time comes and the trump of God sounds and all that takes place, you want to end life being righteous more so than religious. Amen. So, for instance, listen, you want to be righteous? That's where it's at? Listen, the greater portion of the people that were hollering crucify him concerning Christ, crucify him, the greater portion of the people that were doing that and made him suffer, if you will, were, guess who? The religious. The religious. They beat him with their words. What would they say? How are you being a man making yourself God? What was their problem? They said, you're a man, but you're making yourself God. What was their problem? They couldn't stand his righteousness. Hmm? He's a man in shoe leather, but boy, he's awful lot like God. Because he was. They couldn't stand his righteousness. And mainly his righteousness in view of their lack of righteousness. Right? Because all they had really to showcase was the religiosity. The religiosity. And so what this means tonight is this. This means that even the righteous sometimes are going to find themselves suffering at the hands of the religious. Yeah. Amen. You'll find the righteous suffering at the hands of the religious. Amen. But it's not without purpose because even that is a fiery trial to try you or to prove you. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, whenever they refined the metal, let's talk about silver, I guess, particularly silversmith. Whenever they would refine a metal, the metal, it was, it was known the way that they did it, that a metal, silver for this case, was not rid of all of its impurities and all of the other alloys that were in it until the silversmith or the smith could see his image reflected in the molten surface. So he would keep taking away the dross and the impurities. That heat would be there to heat that thing up and he'd take away those impurities until he could see his reflection in the molten surface. Amen. This ties, all of this that we read in verse number 12, ties back to 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 7 that said this. If you'll remember from our study, it said, he said that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This was interesting. I, I learned this. I learned something this week. I learned something every week. Amen. But I learned something this week. Oftentimes we just look at that whole scenario of, of a smith and he's heating that up and see his reflection. But from what I learned this week is that the, the, not just the process, but the furnace itself was very important. I read some things that the furnace for smelting all these metals, it was so skillfully constructed. And you could read about it and I could bore you to death about it. But it was so skillfully, skillfully constructed and, and a work that was so carefully crafted, the furnace itself was art itself. I mean, it was elaborate. Therefore, when you read 1 Peter 1 and 7, notice what it says. It says, the trial of our faith is more precious than gold. In other words... The process that God allows to come into our lives is even more precious than gold. Many times we talk about as though it's ourselves, the end result after we went through the trial and went through the fire, we're the ones that's more precious than gold. No, God's saying the process 
the trial, the testing, the suffering itself is even more precious than the most. Now, none of us are going to say, honey, this stuff, oh, I'm really going through it this week, Brother McGee. It's just like, whoop, here go. No, but God is of the mind frame. From his point of view, what he sees, he sees your suffering, your trial, your tribulation, your agony, your pain. He says, where I, he says, it's like that well-crafted furnace. He said, that skillful furnace that I have you in, it's more precious even than the most precious of God. What you're going through. Wow. <laughs> he says, it's great. Peter's not talking about a person after the trial's over. He's talking about the trial itself and the preciousness of the trial. Now, let's consider the smith, the silversmith now that's taking off this dross and watching all this. Listen, listen to me tonight. The silversmith or the smith of any type of metal, he does not start the furnace, all right, and then leave and then come back at a set time. It's not like cooking. It's not like he puts it on 425 and leaves it for 20 minutes and then comes out. It's done. Boom. That's not what he does with you. It's like put First Apostolic Church on 500 degrees for 30 days. And I'll just come back and they'll be dull. No crispy edges or nothing. They're good. That's not what he does. The smith, whenever he starts the furnace and he inserts the metal, he stays around. And he has to watch the furnace. And he has to watch the metal. He has to monitor the temperature of the furnace regularly, if you will. He has to babysit the process. So in your suffering, when you feel like he's far, he's not near, he's forsaken me, he's let me know if you are in the fiery trial of suffering, be assured that God's right there because he's not going to leave during the process. Mm. Listen, because a, a furnace that's too cold isn't going to get all the impurities out of the metal. But a furnace, they say, that is too hot will cause some minute portions of the silver of what he's trying to get to be carried off with the other alloys. So if it's too cold, it's going to leave in what don't need to be there. If it's too hot, it's going to boil out what needs to be there. And so he's got to stay there and he's got to monitor the temperature just right. He's got to make sure the intensity of the fire, amen, is just so-so. So he's got to keep a constant eye, amen, on the metal and on the furnace in order to manage it. If I could say it like this tonight, God is never more near to you and attentive to you than when you are in suffering. Oh, yes. Now, that's when us, he feels the furthest away. But I'm telling you tonight, quite on the contrary, that's when he's the closest to you. <laughs> Woo! Amen. That's when he's the closest. And so rather, as Peter's trying to address this, rather than to recoil and shock and surprise, I can't believe I'm going through suffering. He says, quite on the contrary, we should rejoice in verse 13. He said, don't think it's strange in verse 12. He says, but in verse 13, but rejoice. But rejoice. Why? Because, well, we've already learned that suffering leads to glory. But now you know he's not far from you. He's really close to you during this moment of time of your life. Amen. As the refiner is close, amen, to the silver and the furnace as he's refining metal. And you, you can rejoice now. Look now. You can rejoice now, verse number 13, because you know what is to come. Have you ever heard me up here? I've been up here preaching or teaching sometimes. I'm like, I'm just so excited. I'm just like, you know, have pardon me because I know where I'm going. Huh? And it's like I'm looking at you all and you're kind of like there with your finger up your nose and whatever else. It's like, I don't know what he's doing. I'm just like, oh, just wait a minute. I'm just so excited. I'm like, I know where I'm going. That's what basically Peter is telling these people. He says, I know you're like, oh, woe is me. And you got your hand on the back of your head. He said, but you can rejoice because I've already clued you in where we're heading. Hey, man, there's the, at the coming of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord, you're going to be accounted as his. And you don't have to wait to rejoice then. You can rejoice right now in your suffering because you're suffering are conditioning you even for that moment. Amen. He says, so, so you can rejoice now because of what's yet to come, the rapture, and then you'll be able to ex be exceeding joyful. Literal interpretation of exceeding joyful is this. You'll be able to jump for joy. I like that. 
you'll be able to jump for joy. Look what James 1, 2 says. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Word again, trials or tribulations. <laughs> Rather sometimes than joy. Rather sometimes than joy. Our response is, what did I do wrong, Lord? And the fact of the matter is, you may have done nothing wrong. The suffering is just due to Christ because you're a part of the body of Christ and you have been made, as verse 14 so eloquently tells us, we've been made partakers of His suffering. So you thought it was yours, didn't you? But you've been a partaker of His suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to give thanks for the suffering. Great verse in, in Thessalonians that's oftentimes been screwed. says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And I've heard people misstrew that say, for everything give thanks. Like, my car broke down. Thank you, Lord, for letting my car break down. You know, I got a disease that's unto death. Thank you, Lord, for giving me this disease unto death. No, it's in everything. So there's a big difference. You know, I'm not thanking him for those things, but it's although whatever's taken place, I'm just giving thanks. That's, that's Paul and Silas in the jail cell at the midnight hour. They're in jail. They're not giving thanks for being in jail, but in spite of being in jail, they're giving praise and thanks to God. And so we can count it all joy, and we can give thanks unto the Lord, not because we're suffering, but in spite of suffering. I'm going through something right now, but I'm going to rejoice. Why? I know the end. I know how this thing turns out. I've read the end of the story. I know what this is doing for my life. I know this is proven for something oh my god my god <laughs> so what's what's what you saying then peter i tell you what i'm saying just keep on rejoicing now so that you can rejoice then keep on rejoicing in this life during your trouble now so that you can rejoice at the day of the coming of the lord acts chapter 5 and verse 41 the, the, the back story to this is is that the disciples they have done some preaching in the name of the Lord. They've been apprehended. They're trying to decide what to do with them. They finally decide, you know, don't do anything against these boys. If it's not of God, it'll fall apart anyway. Do we not have other examples where people did things, and when it wasn't of God, it fell apart? He said, but if you fight against them, and it continues on, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. And so here's what they decided. They said, we're just going to beat them. <laughs> you hate to see really what plan A was, you know. <laughs> They're just going to beat them. And they're going to tell him, don't say, don't preach anymore in his name. And verse 41 says this, Acts 5, 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame. And it didn't stop there, though. Shame for his name. If you're suffering shame and it has nothing to do with his name, you need to find out some other venue. <laughs> The only productive suffering is suffering for his name. Suffering for who he is. And so it's these, uh, these disciples then, they, they realized, if we could call it today, they realized the special sauce. They realized the secret ingredient to suffering, and that is this. It was his sufferings for his name. And in order to keep a proper perspective of suffering in this life, we must keep our suffering that we go through in this life attached to his suffering because it's his suffering and in the end it's going to be his glory but the bible says that we have been made partakers of both parts his suffering and his glory if you're if you're if you'll be a partaker of his suffering you'll be a partaker of his glory but if you don't partake of his suffering you can forget the glory this is not a one without the other this is both. It's his glory and his suffering. We've been made, we've been asked, we've been invited to be partakers of both. Now we can sit here tonight and get everybody right. How many, whoo, hallelujah, how many wants the glory of the Lord? Oh, the great cloud overshadow you and come down and circle you at the rapture day. Woo! And everybody be like, yeah! And then we'll say, well, the prerequisite and all that, you're going to have to suffer all your days upon this earth. 
Now, how many tickets are we going to sell? But that is in just, just, just exactly how it is. So Peter is telling us, you can be exceeding joyful. You can jump for joy in the day of the rapture. But you can also rejoice right now. Because you can. Here's the fabulous thing. You do not have to wait until streets of gold and gates of pearl to experience glory of the Lord. If you've been filled with His Spirit, if you've been filled with His Spirit, what did Paul say in Ephesians? He talked about the Holy Ghost being the earnest of our inheritance. Huh? Right? It's like the the down payment for it. If you have the Spirit of the Lord, you can have a little bit of heaven right now. So you can rejoice now. And you can jump for joy later. <laughs> you can do that too now, you know. But, and so he goes on and tells us in verse 14 that, and, and, and the word there is if. To us, that's a conditional thing. It may happen, it may not. In the Greek language, it's more certain. It's since, since you'll be reproached. So, so when, approach it from that angle, with the original language, when you are reproached for Christ's name, he says, you can be happy. <laughs> or the other wording, translation, you can be blessed. When you're reproached for his name, you can be happy. You can be blessed. You don't have to be in the mully grubs. You don't have to have your bottom lip over top of your nose. You can be happy. But again, the blessing or the happiness in being reproached is only if you're reproached for his, what? Name. So let your, if you're going to suffer, let your suffering be for Christ. And not, he goes on and tells us in the next verse, not for some insignificant reason such as you as a murderer, you as a thief, you had some evil doings or wrongdoings, you as a busybody. Which means you're meddling down around in other people's matters as though you're the authority on their life. Glory. Glory. Paul, Peter really kind of set him up there. Oh, yeah, murderers and thieves. Yeah, yeah, wrong doing, yeah. And then he gets close and says, busybodies. I can't believe no one ever wants to talk to me. <laughs> he says, if you're suffering for the wrong thing, well, we'll just barely touch that, just barely touch it. And he says, while there may be shame for suffering for those reasons, because you're a murderer, you're an evildoer, you're a busybody, while there may be shame in suffering for those reasons, he tells us there is no shame in suffering for being named after the name of Christ. There is no, no reason or no shame in suffering as a Christian. In other words, we have no reason to be ashamed or sorry for being a Christian. You don't have to make any apologies. And I've said this before, it seems like. You don't have to make any apologies. For who you are, who your lifestyle is, you don't have to back up and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, I'm just a Christian and we, we try to live a godly life and I'm sorry I'm having to give you this letter to excuse my kid from such and such. Well, glory. I should have, do I have to get one of these hankies that are here See, Christian, that's something that people really gravitate to today. Man, it, it is a wonderful thing to be called a Christian, and there's barely, if you were to ask all people in the world, there's barely anyone that's probably not a, a Christian. It has all, it's looked upon very nicely being a Christian. But Christian in the disciples' day was not that case. To be called a Christian in the disciples' day was not some honorable thing. To be called a Christian, it was actually a sarcastic mocking label. Honestly, that was predominantly given to them by the world in which they lived. Where the Bible says they were first called Christians at Antioch, that's not other believers calling them Christian. That's the world that called them Christian. And they did that in a mocking and sarcastic way. As a matter of fact, Tactius, writing near the end of the first century, said this. He said the vulgar called them Christians. Because to be a Christian was to be, to be a Christ one or belonging to Christ. 
And so they used the word Christian in a sarcastic term, in a sarcastic way, because the world was basically saying this. They, they are a Christ one or belonging to Christ. They belong to someone who died, and most of the world didn't even believe that he ever resurrected. So see, <laughs> they're a Christian. They belong to something that's not even alive. So that's the way it was looked upon. So when you talk about being reproached for his name, mm -hmm, you got to view it through that type of viewpoint that these are people that's believing that this whole Christ thing was just a farce. This whole following Christ thing and him being alive was just a farce. And so they're being approached for the name. But look what the scripture says. Them being approached for the name. In verse number uh, 14, I think it is. Them being approached for the name was the indication then that they had the spirit of glory and of God resting or resteth upon them. He says whenever these people speak, they're speaking evil of God. But God is glorified through you and by your life, by your suffering in your trial. Because, listen now, we've known this from what we studied. Because these trials wouldn't come upon you. You wouldn't have the reproach and the slander and the hateful words from others had it not been for your faith in God. He says, so if you are being reproached for the name, it's because there's something on you. Woo! If you're being reproached for the name, it's because you're doing something right. That's the reason why we got to turn this thing up on its head. And we said it before, say it again. Honey, if he's, if he's trying to get on your back, if you're going through suffering and trial, I know you got to decipher whether you brought that on yourself or whether it's just life. But if you're doing it for the name, honey, you just realize it's happening because there's something on you. The spirit of glory and of God is upon you. And that's why this thing has come to visit you, to prove you, to try you. Because when we talk about reproach in the scripture, reproach has to do with words. We've learned through 1 Peter, most of the trial and the suffering that Peter is alluding to is about slander words. Words, 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 words. And don't talk about someone's head getting cut off, but you can cut somebody's head off of your words and not see any blood. It's something said. Something said. See, Jesus Christ in the Gospels, he said this. He said, woe unto you when all people speak well of you. That's kind of different, isn't it? Woe unto me if people talk good about me. That's what he's saying. He said, woe unto you if people speak well of you. He said, because they did of the false prophets as well. You know what he says, though, on the contrary to that? Then in Matthew 5, not contrary, but different than, than what our minds wrap around. So if people, are, he said, if all people, that was the verbiage in, in the scripture. Woe unto you if all men, if all people speak well of you. Because sometimes people pride themselves, I don't have any enemies. If you don't have any enemies, you are probably the greatest compromiser upon the earth. He said, woe unto you if all men speak well of you. But then in Matthew 5, 11, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Here it is again, for my sake. Hmm? For his sake. Now, I'm not talking about you being a fruit loop and being stupid. You hearing me? And then you have all this coming upon you because of that? No. But whenever you're standing for his sake, for his name, things that are righteous, things that are godly, things that are honorable, and you're reviled and you're persecuted and manner of evil come against you, happy you should be. Blessed you should be. Jumping for joy. You should be. But if everybody's always speaking well of you and singing your praises and how you're just the kindest person in the world and you always see it their way, you are the greatest compromiser of his name, Listen, because if you stand for the Lord, you're going to make enemies. You hearing me? Because if he found them, the servant is no greater than the master. So you pride yourself all day long about nobody, nobody. No, uh -uh, I don't have any enemies. Well, honey, I wouldn't be too proud about that. 
Because if you're going to stand with this, whoever was an enemy of God in Christ is going to be an enemy of you. Amen. So, you know, back to this mode. Oh, God, I'm going through a trial. I'm going through suffering. God has forsaken me. But Peter really tells him, he's not forsaken you. The spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. Our humanity, our fleshly side wants us to think he's abandoned us. But in actuality, just as that Smith, he's really near. So much that the spirit is resting upon this. And so you know what? You're suffering. Can you imagine this? Only people that's went through this Bible study would you be able to say this to. You know, someone saying, it's just been a horrible day. I just, you know, all kinds of things that just happened. You are blessed, brother. Brother, you just are. I just want you to know how happy you are. You are blessed. Now, you want to do that in the proper context because you do that anywhere else and they're going to think, woo, yeah. I don't know where you came from. But from here on out around here, you, you know, because sometimes you hear grumbling and you hear all kinds of stuff. That you, sometimes in a day you might have heard it from five different people, you know, even in church. And, you know, now we can just combat them with, you are blessed, sister. My God, you are happy. <laughs> Why? Because, man, the Spirit of God, you just tell them that, the Spirit of God is resting on you, you know. It's been horrible. We went through, we've, we've been this and we try to stand for truth and all this, all this stuff happened. Man, the Spirit of God is resting on you. <laughs> you are blessed. You are happy. Look at this. Here is, here is what blessed or happy means in the Scripture. This is important. It means fully satisfied no matter the circumstances. So when we really tote the word, man, I'm blessed. I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> I'm blessed. You know what you're saying? You're fully satisfied in spite of your circumstances. You know, some people want to equal bless when things are going their way. Man, God's been good to me. I'm blessed. This happened and this happened. Talk about everything that went good. You don't hear anybody say, phew, I'm blessed. The car broke down and the washer gave up its ghost. And whoo, glory, hallelujah. Now the... The freezer side is hotter than the house and it spoiled all of our food. I'm blessed. God's been so good. You don't hear that. But you know what he's saying? He said, we got to, we got to redefine what blessed is for us. According to God's word, blessed is being fully satisfied no matter the circumstances. That's how Peter can then hear say, you're going through suffering? You're blessed. Why? Because blessed isn't determined by your circumstances. Blessed is about your satisfaction. And when you with God, there's nothing that satisfies any better. So that may be broke, and they might be speaking bad about you, but if you got God, you're satisfied no matter what's going on. And so we're not blessed because of being reproached. We are blessed in spite of being reproached. Our satisfaction, our blessing is in the Lord. Our blessing is in the Lord. Brother Terry was over here today, newsflash. We're trying to get something done before Easter. I don't know if we can get it accomplished. I'll let him kind of take the lead on it. We're trying to get this carpet stretched out before Easter. And so we've had a guy come today. He's going to be giving us an estimate. And if it's a good deal, we're going to do it. I know we got a bunch of other things going on. But some of our elders have been tripping on this stuff. I've seen them. We will get this thing straightened out. Amen. But he was over here today, and we was just talking because most people, if not by observation otherwise, you know, some of the things that they have, you know, went through in their life or he has went through in particularly. And I love what he said because I I'd already, I was already deep in this, Brother Terry. I came out of my office. He didn't realize I was here. I was just typing away on my little laptop there. Click, 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 click. He couldn't hear it. And I came out, and uh, we just began talking a little bit and stuff. And he says, you know, Brother McGee, he says, I've been through a lot, you know. Just a little bit later, then he says, but I'm not the only one. Man, he was preaching my lesson for me. He, was teaching. he said, but I'm not the only one. And then he said, you know, but God's been good to me. You know what I just wanted to say? Brother Terry, you just blessed. You know, God's spirit is resting. God's spirit is just resting all over you. Now, folks, what the thing is, I didn't prompt that. That was just the spirit of a man. That I truly believe then that God must be resting upon him. And that God has been there with his hand on the dial, seeing everything he's going through. And God's saying the process is just more precious than gold even, where you're going through. And Brother Terry recognizes it enough to say, I've been through suffering, I've been through a lot, it's not over, but I'm not the only one, but God. 
God has surely been good to me. Let's clap our hands into the Lord right now. God has been Messiah. He's blessed because he's satisfied in his God. Hmm. <laughs> so the spirit and the glory of God rest upon his people. Rest upon his people. How does this happen? You remember in the Old Testament, it was the cloud. It's described by people as the Shekinah glory of the Lord. The Shekinah glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle in the wilderness. Priests couldn't even stand to minister because the glory entered the house when it was finished. Whenever Solomon made the temple, according to the direction and prescription of his father David, the Bible says whenever all things were done and put in place, the cloud, that presence, that glory, Filled the house, and they were not able even to stand to minister. So, it glory, the spirit of glory rested upon the tabernacle and on the temple. We even read of it hovering, as it were, above the temple. When it moved, the people moved. Why did the spirit hover or fill these buildings that were constructed? Number one reason. Because both the tabernacle and the temple was constructed per God's design. You read of it and they say everything that was done to the tabernacle and the temple was done according to the way the Lord told Moses or according to the way that David told his son Solomon. And so when everything was done the way that God prescribed, his spirit rests upon it. Can I tell you tonight, his spirit of glory can rest upon you as we've already seen in earlier verses of Scripture. When you're as that obedient child, right? Amen. That's obedient to its creator. And whenever that happens, when things are done according to he has prescribed, his spirit rests upon you. Mm -hmm. When you live your life in such a manner in a way that he's prescribed, his spirit rests upon you. Why? Yes. Yes. Why? Because he's not in competition with any other gods in your life. Because he's not in competition with darkness. He's not in competition with adultery. He is God and God alone. He says, I can rest there. I can... Where the Bible speaks of the Spirit in the New Testament Scripture as a dove. Remember at the baptism of Jesus? The Spirit is relayed to us as though it's coming as a dove and resting upon him. <laughs> it's my understanding that the condition or the personality of a dove only rests somewhere. Where it, 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 that's the reason why we equate with a dove sometimes peace. Because it only rests somewhere where it's peaceable. Where there's not... Everything's peaceable. Whenever that thing comes to rest, there can't be the war in the spirit between a God and another God. What has predominance in life? No, 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 no. He says, I can rest where there's been a made-up mind there at peace with where they are with me. So you can say what you want to. So, so we got people reproaching us, according to Peter. He says they're reproaching you. They're giving slander and all this stuff. So here's my, here's my mentality. Say what you want to. Say what you want to. But the Spirit of God rests on me. Say what you want to. What are you saying, Brother McGee? I'm saying this. I'd rather have His Spirit than their approval any day. Mm, someone say amen. Are you serious? Is it already that time? Well, Holy Ghost. Does anybody want to stay for a little while longer? Will you give me 12 minutes? That would be an hour. 1 Peter 4 and verse 17. Look at it. We're going on. For the time has come. Peter addressing all these suffering people. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God 
commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Peter has said mouthfuls leading up to this moment. Now he's kind of putting everything in perspective here. He's saying judgment must begin at God's house. He's saying judgment, and he's kind of doing a earthly suffering versus a eternal punishment. The judgment he's looking at here is you being judged upon the earth through your suffering, the proving, the suffering doing the proving of you upon the earth for the obedient compared to the eternal punishment of those that reject him that is to come. And he says, so judgment, you suffering now because suffering, judgment's starting right now for the house of God. Proving is happening right now for the house of God. So it begins suffering. The judgment begins with the obedient through suffering first. Suffering for his name. Suffering for his character. Suffering for his sake. But then that judgment even goes on to the disobedient. And they're judged in endless punishment. So there's an earthly suffering that's contrasted with an endless punishment that is to come. So Peter is telling the church, those that believe, don't be taken back. Don't be bewildered now. He said, because theirs is coming. Do you hear me? See, Job struggled with it. He says, their children, they don't ever have any, any children that are not brought to the, to the birthing canal and not birth. Their cattle birth. Their offspring do well. Their crops do well. Job says all this in the book of Job. What is he looking at? The wicked. He's looking at the unbelievers. He's saying they're prospering. You know what he's saying? They never suffer. And he's saying, here am I. I've lost all my kids. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my health. He's dealing with all this. If he could have only heard the voice of Peter, Peter would speak to him and say, listen here, Job, don't be taken back or shocked by what you're going through now because the unbelievers are going to have their day. He says, and where yours is temporal, theirs will be eternal. Mm. And so David even said it too. He said, oh, man, the, the wicked, they're flourishing, and they're doing all this. Uh, it's in it's one of the 70s, 78, 77, somewhere in there, or 71. It's in the 70s of Psalms. Amen. He's talking about, man, they're flourishing. It's doing this. He said, but whenever I got to the house of God, that's what he said. Whenever I got to the sanctuary, my whole perspective changed. Man, I thought I was milligrubbing around, and my, I, I was, man, my lip was down. I was feeling bad about myself by everything I was going through, and they had everything good. But when I got to the house of God, you know what happened? Man, there was just a little reviving and fresh of the spirit that God on him I believe and he thought you know what I'm a blessed man I've lost some of my children but I'm blessed <laughs> I've lost some of my children I've done, yeah I am blessed what did he do he understood that he can't compare his now to their eternity he said I just can't seem to do it I just can't seem to reconcile all these things because it seems like they're living on easy street I like what the Believer's Study Bible said. The Believer's Study Bible said this. Listen to it well. He said, God hates sin so much and loves his children so much that he will spare us no pain to rid us of what he hates. Whew. Let me say it again. God hates, God hates sin so much and loves his children so much that he will spare us no pain to rid us of what he hates. What's that mean? You're going to suffer. Because it's the trial that tries you. It's the trial that proves. And so here's what we come to terms with. If in this life, in this old earthly manner, if God judges his own house, if God judges his own people, then what would you presume the end for the disobedient is going to be like? Brother Terry, if you've went everything you've went through in this earthly body as a child of God, and God's judged in some judging now, what do you think life would be like if you wasn't a child of God then? If you think his hand's been heavy right now being a believer, how heavy do you think it's going to be for those that rejected him? He restates it in another way in verse number 18. He says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where does that in my own words, where does that leave the ungodly and the sinner? And the word scarcely means this. 
if the righteous with difficulty are saved. If the righteous with difficulty are saved. In other words, if the righteous are saved in the midst of their suffering here on the earth, and their suffering, as we've learned here tonight and other times in Scripture, their suffering is a part of their purifying process. If they're saved through all that, if they purify, and we, we read these scriptures, folks, back in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. You remember the Bible talks about us purifying our souls with the word of God? You remember back there? You probably can't remember that back that far, can you? But we purify our souls by the word of God. Amen. And when we do that, that means we are exercising obedience. And the same obedience that purifies the soul brings on the persecution from unbelievers. But it's with that type of difficulty that we are saved. All right? But on another note, scarcely be saved. But with difficulty, consider, consider it through this lens. It was through Jesus Christ's rejection and crucifix. Everybody say difficulty. It's through his rejection and crucifix. That atonement, at one was made for all. He did that so everybody could be atoned. But if the righteous accept that, where does that leave the ungodly and the sinner that reject it? Because there's no other way for atonement but through Christ Jesus. So if they reject the only way, where does that leave them in the end of time? The Bible says, Matthew 7, 14, because straight, it's interpreted in the Greek, small is the gate. And narrow, it's interpreted in the Greek, pressed together, compress, afflict, squash, him in, figuratively, suffering. And narrow is the way, because straight is the gate and suffering is the way, if I may interject, which leadeth into life. And few there be that. You know what the mentality? Sad with the mentality. People are not calculating right. They're saying, not now. Not now. Last verse. We're going to do it. In Jesus' name. If you all say anything about it, though, I'm going to just suffer for Christ's sake. <laughs> Look at that last verse. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Those that suffer for God's will commit themselves, commit the keeping of their souls to God by or in their well doing the way that we stay committed to God is keeping doing the good that we're doing just as those obedient children just as a creation that's under the authority of their creator listen to me the hardest thing about the hardest thing is not conforming to the will of God that's not the hardest thing because he's empowered us He's given his word. All these things allow us to grow up into the stature of Christ. All these things. He's given us the tools necessary to conform. So the hard thing is not conforming to the will of God. You know what the hard part is? Enduring what we believe people are thinking of us and saying about us when we do his will. You, let's get real here tonight. Listen to me. Let's get real real. Some people that come to me sometimes and talk about, well, I just can't live for the Lord because of X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z is really not the problem. It's what other people think about their X, Y, and Z and what people are saying that's really the issue. Oh, God, help me, 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 help me. Because I've heard all kinds of things. That's not the issue. He's given us the spirit and the power for that that transformation, that conforming. That's not the issue. You know what our problem? Other people's voices, what people think. And there's where we revere once again, what people think more than what God thinks. 
That's really where the crux comes. I mean, seriously, that's where I know some people have addictions and so on and so forth. But I'm saying the crux of it all really comes down to people just can't stand being thought of differently. Living in this world than what everybody else has thought of because they live a life that's different from this world. So what happens then? When they hear the, when they, when they presume what people are thinking or they hear what people are saying, you know what they do? They retreat in their life, live for the Lord. Why? Because of the shame that they feel from the world. You hear me? The shame that they feel from the world is sounding louder to them than the honor they're getting from God. It's not that God isn't honoring them, but they are placing the emphasis where they see the emphasis. Let's just get real. Um, woo, I know it. Bless God. It's over. Let's go. You have two people say identical things to you in your life. And probably the one that you put more credence to as an individual is the one that's going to impact you the most. Although the exact thing is said. If, some, if someone and someone else that I don't know from Adam's house cat was here and told me and my wife said, you know, dear, your preaching was really kind of off tonight. If both of them said something, I could probably care less about the stranger said, but, but since I live with her and have for the past 22 years, almost, that was going to crush my spirit because I put stock in what she says. So if we are more concerned about the shame the world is putting on us, more than the honor that God has put on us, then that tells us whose voice is important in our life. We put more stock and credence in what the world has to say than what God has to say. But folks, when the day is done, he's the one with the final say. And so that's where my allegiance needs to go. Stay with me. Let's wrap this thing up. What y'all doing? Come on, stand up. My goodness. My question to you tonight, who are you trying to please? Who are you trying to please? When do you question God? When everything's well? No, it's during your moments of suffering, isn't it? We got to commit ourselves to God. Just as Christ, the Bible said in Peter, 2 Peter, he committed himself to God while he was suffering unjustly. While he was suffering unjustly, he was a just man, but he was suffering unjustly. You know what he did? He committed himself to God. And so likewise, we've got to commit ourselves to God. And whenever you, you see that word commit, it's like making a deposit. But they didn't have the banking system, Sister Sheila, like we did today. If a person went on a long journey and they had things that was precious, you know what they did? They committed that or deposited that to their neighbor. And you know something they had to take in consideration, Brother Malone? Is my neighbor noteworthy or have enough integrity that I can commit this to? That's the reason why he said, you know what you need to do? You need to commit your souls to God, the faithful creator. You don't have to worry about what you commit to him. He's going to take care of it. And so Peter's words of encouragement, I'm closing, I really am. Finally, brethren, Peter's encouragement is this to the Christians there of those cities that he started off in in, in chapter 1. Keep doing what you are doing, even if it feels difficult right now. You know what it means? You cannot, you, he's saying continue doing well. He's saying don't jump ship just because the ocean is tumultuous. Press on. Keep doing what you're doing, just even if it feels difficult right now. Because if we jump every time it's difficult, honey, you're going to spend life jumping. But he says, you, you got to just keep on. He says, evidently, something's got the attention of the enemy. The same thing that got the attention of the enemy in Jesus' day. And that's the spirit of the Lord. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.12, and I close. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, he says, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep. Why? Because I committed it to him. To keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The trial is to prove you.
It don't just prove you in this life, but it's proven you for the life that comes after this one. <laughs> I'm blessed. I'm happy. I'm satisfied in spite of my circumstances. Thank God. Can we just bow our heads in this place right now? Mighty God, I come to you, Lord. I'm telling you tonight, if anybody is in this place tonight and they are in that crux of the road of, 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 of deciding or perhaps the voice of the world is sounding louder with its shame, trying to convince you to give up, throw in the towel, just put down your cross and forget the suffering part and just live life. If that is, if that is vying for your attention, I want you to open your eyes tonight, not in a, a literal sense, but in a figurative sense. I want you to open your eyes to the honor that God is placing upon you. You need to recognize the spirit of glory and the spirit of God that rests upon on you. Amen. Because you're living your life in harmony the way that he has prescribed. Hallelujah. This suffering is just for a moment. This suffering is just a little lightweight but there is an eternal weight in glory someday. There is something awaiting us. So tonight just, just church family, just keep doing well. Commit your soul to God and commit it to him by just keep doing well and keep serving the Lord and keep pressing on and keep being faithful in spite of the slander, in spite of the gossip for his name's sake, in spite, amen, of whatever you may face as a result of upholding the truth of God's word. Just keep your head forward, set your face like a flintstone, as the scripture says, and persevere because there is an inheritance waiting for you. We cannot get drugged down with voices of temporary voices of our hour. We got to hear what heaven is saying and heaven is saying, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. And you just got to keep on going on until you receive the fullness of your inheritance tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus. Can we raise our hands right now to the Lord? God, we submit wholeheartedly to you. God, we submit to you. God, we know whatever we go through, Lord, it is your sufferings. It'll be your glory. But you've invited us to be partakers of both but we can't get the glory if we're not willing to endure the suffering. We are the church triumphant. The gates of hell shall not prevail, but that does not mean they will not attempt to assail us. Hallelujah, God. We are triumphant in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, 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 God. I love you, Jesus. It is the trial that proves us. The trial that proves us. Hallelujah. You may be dismissed tonight. Come back on Sunday, Sunday morning, a.m. at 10. Amen. Sunday evening at 7 o'clock. 6 o'clock, rather. At 6 o'clock. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's F-A-C-M-C. Thank you and have a blessed day.